0: Welcome to The Last Word on the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Every week we take a last look at the message from the most recent Crosstalk. Enjoy this short conversation and stay tuned for the full message directly after.
1: Hey guys, welcome to The Last Word. My name is Cam and I'm one of the Crosstalk interns. And this morning, on this beautiful morning we're having, I'm joined by my co-host and co-intern, Johnny.
2: Hello there.
1: Good morning, Johnny. He becomes British every morning when he does his little introduction, like all the time. You just become British. It's really great. JD, where's your British accent?
0: I don't have one. (laughs) Not at all.
1: Not at all? Can you like make it appear? Yeah,
0: I I really can't. I apologize.
1: Polish, German. (laughs) Um, but anyway, um, at Crosstalk on Thursday, it was glad we're, we were glad to have you back, JD. Um, glad to have you back preaching. It had been a few weeks. It had been before mm-hmm. spring break, and so it was really refreshing and really nice to have you there and to have you preaching. And we talked about the concept of loving God and loving others. We talked about the Shema and having that mindset and that heart posture of continuously seeking to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor every single day. And so for us who maybe grew up as Christians or maybe have just been following Jesus for a while, that can kind of become something that can become like an empty mantra, I think, after a little while. You're like, oh, I'm just like out here loving God and loving people. And that's true. That's awesome. But how can we keep from becoming kind of desensitized and kind of just pushing that to the side? But how can we really, really lean into the purpose that God has for us in that statement?
0: I think that, and it's something that we all recognize is that sometimes the most basic thing mm-hmm. is the hardest thing of all, because Thanks. we want to move on to all of these bigger and greater things. We yeah. want to move on to things uh, that seem more significant. And what's crazy is like just as you note, is if we've been following Jesus for any amount of time, we there's this weird tendency to lose just this. Mm-hmm. This yeah. like very simple, mm-hmm. basic kind of following Jesus' life because we complicate it with all of these other things. And I think that Uh, The Shema really in the ancient Jewish practice provides a way for us to recapture Mm -hmm. some of the beauty that comes with this very simple kind of following Jesus. If we keep this at the forefront of our minds, uh, like we talked about on Thursday night of repeating these words of Jesus every morning and every night, they become central to who we are. They become an ingrained part of our character. And when we do that, then it transforms from, uh, something we forget or this kind of like rote legalism or, uh, something I have to do to something that is, uh, transformative. It's a transformative inner work that then manifests itself in these outer actions of loving God and loving other people. But it has to be something that, uh, captures our hearts. And I think Mm -hmm. that the, the practice of the Shema really, uh, captured the hearts of the Jewish people and has the same power for us if we just apply that principle to these words of Jesus.
1: Yeah. What are your thoughts, Johnny?
0: Yeah. Um, I think that as someone who is
2: living to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it's so easy for us to be like, oh yeah, let's go feed the homeless. Like, let's go love the people on a mission trip and stuff. But then we forget that to love your neighbor as yourself is also the person that's next to you that's in crosstalk that you... Might Have an issue with that you might, you know, have some type of beef with, like, you need to radically love that person as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that that is included in the Shema that we all the time, like, we forget that mm-hmm. it's not just the people that need love, but it's like people in our lives that we need to love. Um, For sure. and so there's that, and then there's also just like loving God can become something that. Just turns into us just constantly like asking things from him, and mm-hmm. us not, um, I think, sacrificing mm-hmm. a lot. And so we think that like loving God often looks like, oh, mm-hmm. like yeah, I'll, I'll attend this, but God, can you make all these things happen for me? But I think it it takes us being humbled a lot to yeah. follow mm-hmm. yeah. Jesus and to follow exactly. the Shema of loving people that we have. Issues with, and then also to be pursuing God, and not only be looking for God pursuing us.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think too, as Christians, for some reason, and we've t- we've kind of talked about the pendulum complex before, where we're on one side where we're like, yeah, like just loving God and loving people, but we don't like necessarily put it into practice. It's just something that we say, and it's just something that we kind of let our fall ourselves fall under a banner of without actively like seeking the Lord, and we forget that this is the purpose of it is to meditate on it and to truly ask like god how can i live this out like how can i receive your love today and how can i like practically like live it out today and then on the other side of the spectrum i think that we can like disregard that and just be like do 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 i got to do this this and this and i'm going to do this and this and i'm going to make this my to do list and this my can't do list and i think as followers of jesus the key is is that it's not one end of the pendulum or the other but it's like in the middle really seeking the lord every single day and mm-hmm. not letting it become legalism but also not letting it become uh, like an inactive faith mm-hmm. um absolutely so like you said on thursday loving your neighbor can be hard like you said because they're the yeah. people that probably might annoy us the most might poke at us the most and so how do we know like how do we take care of our neighbors but also not let ourselves become doormats, because this is a problem for me a little bit where I'm like, oh, I just need to do, do, do. And then to the point where it might be sacrificing a little bit of my own health. And um, I don't know. I just wanted to kind of touch on that because that's something that I've struggled with in the past is like, how do I stand up for myself, but also serve like wholeheartedly?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, boundaries are an incredibly important thing. Um, Loving our neighbor is something that is a sacrificial act, like it costs something of us to go out of our way to, to do something for others, but we don't do that to the detriment of our own health and sure. well-being. And that's a really important distinction to make. Now, oftentimes you can fall in ministry on, again, either side of the pendulum. The first of which is that minist- ministry is supposed to be a sacrifice, therefore I don't think of myself at all. Mm-hmm. Okay, that would maybe be our parents' generation. Those who have been in ministry for a long time who think that calling is all about sacrifice, it's all about giving of themselves, and they don't allow themselves to think about their own needs because they're so focused on the needs of others. Now, the opposite side of the pendulum is really uh, our generation today, where it's all about self-care, it's all about Mm -hmm. ensuring that Uh, I'm taking care of myself, which is a really, really good thing. But the problem is we become so obsessed with our self-care that we're selfish. We don't actually do anything to serve others. And so that balance is somewhere in the middle where, yes, loving our neighbor, loving our classmates, loving our teammates, our coworkers, the people that we see on the bus every day is going to cost us something. Mm -hmm. But we have to have enough emotional intelligence to know that we cannot pour out unless we've been filled up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so for us, that means prioritizing Sabbath routines. It Mm -hmm. means prioritizing our own spiritual and emotional health, taking care of our needs. And Mm -hmm. so if I am incredibly, incredibly spiritually drained, I'm incredibly physically drained, my mental health is in a very negative place, Mm -hmm. then... I need to prioritize mm-hmm. being whole and healthy and well-adjusted in my life. Yeah. And a part of that might be actually serving others mm-hmm. because that gives us some sort of sense of uh, of purpose or of helping others' well-beings, but we do have to prioritize our own health. And so I think that the balance is intensely personal, For but sure. we do have to resist the temptation to swing from uh, sacrificing our own health for the sake of others and that selfish perspective where I am more important than everybody else in my life. And the the balance is somewhere in the middle where we do need to be prioritizing our own health, but we need to uh, also be self, uh, giving yeah. and we need to be serving others, we need to be loving our neighbor in ways that do cost us something. Yeah, because if ultimately, if it doesn't cost us something, it's not actually meaningful love mm-hmm. towards our neighbor. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, if you're around someone
2: often who is just really mean to you all the time, and is really hard to be around, um, something you can do to love them is, uh, yeah, like show patience and show that you're not going to strike back whenever they strike at you. Like, say they say something mean, like you don't need to one-up them, you know. Um, But also to love them, you know, you can keep them accountable and you can call them out, but you can do it in a loving manner. So, like, say that person is just continuously mean to you, whether it's someone in your ministry, someone in class or something, the way that you try to confront them about it is you can do it in a very patient and loving manner where you're still very, like, truthful with like how you're feeling like with what they need to do that's just not that's going to change what they've been doing um Mm -hmm. and so try to be thinking of that that like the way you confront a situation and the way that you try to work through conflict is still through a loving manner of like okay let me not just point a finger let me think of like Hey, like this is what you're doing. I don't know why you're doing this. How it's making me feel. Like Mm -hmm. let's talk about this and just like letting them know. And I think that that's the most you can do. And then if it continues to be a problem, then like JD was saying, I think boundaries is super important to be like, okay, maybe I should limit my time with this person. Maybe I should include other people into it. Like that's a very biblical way to do that. For sure. And so yeah, I think that there's different
0: steps, but throughout it all just love <laughs> yeah. absolutely and and I think you do bring up a good point that sometimes the most loving thing that we can do is set boundaries in mm-hmm. relationships in our life. Yeah. Uh to demonstrate what good healthy uh Christ-centered boundaries looks like is ultimately a loving act towards someone who might not understand mm-hmm. uh yeah. what that looks like.
1: Yeah. Cuz without those boundaries resentment can build up, those annoyances can just grow. Um and like you said, that's exactly right. I think the most loving thing we can do sometimes is to set those boundaries with time, space, and, and whatever we need and whatever the situation is, you know, um, case by case basis. But so you mentioned how we get into a good place when we're not in this pendulum, right? When we are like taking care of ourselves, but also taking care of people. And this is something that came to my mind because I was just writing a paper on Charles Spurgeon and something that Charles Spurgeon struggled with that I think a lot of Christians probably struggle with is he constantly felt guilty for feeling. Mm-hmm like he wasn't doing enough for God, even when he was, like even when he was doing the most that he could to the point of the detriment of his health. And so my question is, what would you say to believers who maybe are doing the best they can and really leaning into what God has for them in terms of taking care of themselves, but also being spirit-led and how can I serve those around me, but still feeling like I'm not doing enough and like a guilt association with that?
0: Absolutely. I think that... uh... Guilt is not something we should be feeling in our relationship with God. Ultimately, that uh, that is not from the Lord. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, when we sin, when we struggle with things, when we make the wrong choice, we say the wrong thing, there is a sense that uh, God does something in our hearts to draw Mm -hmm. us back to Him to repent and to confess, and we receive forgiveness when we do that. But... Uh, guilt is ultimately generally driven by our own self. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's me feeling bad about myself. Mm-hmm. And God doesn't want us to sit around feeling bad about ourselves. He mm-hmm. wants to, us to lean into how He has called us to live and who He's made us to be. And mm-hmm. so a, a lot of this comes back to a really um, robust and fruitful prayer life where we're saying, yeah. Lord... I want to know, and I want to be sensitive to your spirit, the things that you're calling me to do. Mm -hmm. And when we are living in that way, when we have that sense of obedience, then there's contentment in him. There's not guilt that I'm not doing more because I'm being faithful to the things that God is showing me Mm -hmm. that I'm supposed to be doing in this season. And so when I look at my list for the week and how I'm spending my time and what am I prioritizing there are moments where I'm like, "Ooh, my priorities are out of whack. I need to spend more time on my personal relationship with the Lord. I need to spend more time loving Him." Or, "Oh wow, like I my schedule is totally crazy this week, and I'm not loving my wife." Mm-hmm. Now, those realizations then lead me to reorient how I'm spending my time throughout the day, um, and those are good and helpful reminders. But ultimately, my prayer every day is, God, what do you want me to do today? Mm-hmm. And if I'm faithful to what He wants to do with my day, then there is no place for guilt or shame in that. There's contentment and there's joy because I'm living into the things that God wants me to do on a daily basis. And so I, I, I would really say that we shouldn't—we really shouldn't be feeling that guilt or shame. Like, those are not of the Lord. Um, yeah. And so we need to instead be having this robust prayer life where we're seeking and asking the Lord, reveal to me the things that you would have me to do today. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, we find joy and we find contentment, not guilt about the things that we have left undone. Ultimately, God is at work whether we do those things or not. And so it's an act of trust Mm -hmm. on our part to just be faithful to the things that God has called us to do, to not worry about all of the things that we've left undone. Right. Yeah, I think a
2: lot of us can feel that same way where we're feeling like we're not doing enough. And usually that comes from comparison Mm -hmm. of just other Mm -hmm. Christians being like, they're going on these mission trips. This guy's discipling so many people. And like, it feels like they're always like joyful and I'm not really feeling that. And Mm -hmm. I must not be doing enough for God. Um, It usually can stem from comparison. And it is like, we're looking at the Bible and we're looking at others and we're thinking like, how do we live up to all these laws, all the 613 or whatever. And Mm -hmm. then it, like, we look here, and then Jesus is like, Okay, but these two are the most important. Like, start here. Like, this is what you need it's to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. And it's like, How do we do that? It's like, Well, have that thought in your mind, on your heart, like JD was saying, to have us just repeat it day in and day out. So that way, like, that's at the center of our hearts. And then to do that, we need to be like looking at, Okay, what are the fruits of the Spirit? Let's try displaying that. Let's like, pursue that in our lives to be patient with other people and Mm -hmm. ultimately just be available for what God wants to do for you and what Mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit wants to work through you. Mm -hmm. So that way you can see those situations of being able to love your neighbor. So like pray to God that he can reveal a -hmm. situation or circumstance that you can display the Shema
1: Yeah, for sure. I think we definitely put way too much emphasis on ourselves and like our works. But what's really interesting is that the Bible actually says that our works are rags, that they're dirty rags, that they they contribute nothing to our salvation. And in fact, like the only thing that contributes to our salvation is like our sin. You know, like the worst thing we could do, death that separates us from God. There's no parts of us that are justifiable, none. Like it's all completely like by God's grace and mercy that we're even able to come into a place to do work for him. And even in that, God is not the bestower of guilt or of shame, but he's the bestower of mercy. He's the lavisher of kindness and love. And so I think for anybody who's feeling that, really like, the heart issue of it is to say like, okay, God, like why do I feel guilt? And I know that's not from you right now. Mm -hmm. And to really give it to him and say, Lord, I pray that you would lavish on me things that I know are from you and take away these things that I know aren't From you. But yeah, I was writing that paper and it was crazy because Charles Spurgeon fell into like depressions because Mm -hmm. he was like, I'm not doing enough for God. And he was, would like literally make himself sick from working so much. And he was like, What would Paul say? (laughs) You know? And so Mm -hmm. I think it's easy to twist it to something like, Well, no, I just need to keep going. And so that's something that had been on my mind.
0: Like, just. Yeah, a lot of the time we have to slow down. Yeah. So that God can actually do more. Mm. Uh, the reality is God is far more interested in who we are than what we do. And when we put all the pressure on what we do, then like we're creating guilt and shame. Yeah. Because it's up to us. It's up to us to accomplish and to do things and to have an impact. But ultimately, God's the only one who can make things grow and, mm. and happen. And yeah. so I, that's a lesson that I've had to learn in my own ministry career, which is it's not up to me to make things grow. hmm I can work 80 hours a week and I can leave nothing undone. Mm-hmm. And yet God is the one who makes things grow. And so it's far more important for me to not be ruled by guilt and shame that I'm not doing enough and instead lean into what God actually is interested in, which is me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's interested in forming me uh-huh. as his child and the outpouring of that is what I do. And so there is no guilt or shame mm-hmm. because it's not up to me to, yeah. to accomplish anything.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's good stuff, you guys. Good stuff. Um, I learned a lot. Um, I'm thankful for you guys in these conversations. But um, I'm going to go ahead and hand it over to JD for the last word and stuff we got coming up this week.
0: Absolutely. I'm really excited. We're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 13. Um, Now for people who are familiar with Mark chapter 13, this can be a bit of an overwhelming uh, chapter to look at because it's what's called like an apocalyptic discourse. Like Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. He's talking about his own second coming. He's talking about wars and famines and tribulation and persecution. And it's like, Oh my gosh. Uh, (laughs) This is a little bit overwhelming, but it's really important for us to understand because this chapter, chapter 13 of the book of Mark contains uh, the longest speech of Jesus in the entire book outside of his treatment of the parables in chapter four. And so there's something that's really, really important for us to delve into. And... Uh, I'm I'm excited to see what it has to teach us. I think that uh, a lot of us have a misconception about how we're to read biblical prophecy, mm-hmm. and so my hope is that as we read the, Jesus's prophetic words, we begin to understand prophetic speech as a form of instruction and not necessarily fortune-telling. And I think that that lends itself to a lot of really valuable and important things for us uh, as we read. So I'm super excited. Uh, Hope you guys can join us on Thursday. And then in addition to joining us on Friday for the camping trip, you guys sign up. It's going to be on the Crosstalk Guide. All right, we'll see you Thursday. Way down. There you go. That'll work. Sorry about that, guys. We didn't. Uh, it's just me and Jeremiah tonight, which means we didn't bring a sound guy. So we are the sound guy. So all the issues are definitely my fault. This is like what it all amounts to. I got to tell you guys, I last week was the le- was the first. Thursday that I had missed since I started here in October of 2020, I missed you guys. It was a little weird. I didn't like not having time with you guys, and uh, I'm grateful to be back. I'm grateful for a team like Cam and Johnny and Joel and Tyler being here last week to help make it happen. But uh, last week, Cam continued uh, to teach to us out of the book of Mark. And we've been going through this the entire spring and kind of to, to help us out at this point, we're going to enter into the last kind of third of the book this evening. I'm going to break it down into kind of three sections for us that we can, so we can help to see some themes and see some key ideas that kind of come out in the text. So the first section of the book of Mark consists of chapters one to eight. And these deal primarily with the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And the stories that we looked at in Mark 1, Mark chapters 1 through 8 emphasize the people's confusion about who the person of Jesus was, who the identity of him. And what Mark is doing is he's highlighting a kind of common universal struggle with trying to grasp who Jesus is. Is And we still see that today. Many people struggle with the question of who is Jesus. Was Jesus a real historical person? Was he a prophet? Was he a preacher? Was he a king? Is he a total liar or a lunatic? And so this question brings us to the second section of the book. And this middle section is the most important for us to understand. It's made up of chapters 8 to 10. Now inside of chapters 8 to 10, there are three key stories that we looked at. And they all are, are pretty Similar in nature. If you guys have noticed over the last three weeks, Jesus says the same thing in each of these stories three different times. And what Mark is really doing here is highlighting the question that Jesus asks of his disciples at the beginning of Mark chapter 8. He asks the question, Who am I? Who am I? Yes, who do the people say that I am? And then he says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, You are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. Now Peter nails it, right? He understands the identity of the person of Jesus. But it becomes clear that for Peter, this means this victorious military king from the line of David, who would rescue the people of Israel from the Romans. And what we see is that Jesus makes clear that to be the Messiah is actually the exact opposite. To be the Messiah is to be the suffering servant. But the disciples really don't understand. Over the past three weeks we've seen that the disciples believed that following Jesus would ultimately mean status and importance. They argue about who is the greatest, for example. And Jesus makes clear that following him is like dying and carrying your own cross to your death. And so the whole second section of the book of Mark is asking the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be Messiah. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And so we're entering the third section of the book of Mark this evening, and this section is all about how Jesus becomes king. How does Jesus become king? In Mark chapter 11, Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. He makes this public royal entry into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And this is what we in the Christian tradition call Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday it marks the beginning of the last week of Jesus's life. And as he enters into the city of Jerusalem, all of the people hail him as the Messiah. And this kicks off an entire week of Jesus debating and confronting the leaders of Israel and exposing their hypocrisy in the temple. And in response, the, the leaders ultimately set into motion a plan that ultimately leads to Jesus' death on a cross. Now, when I was in high school, I had a, a baseball coach. His name was Roy Canaan. Roy Canaan, and he was like he had to have been in his mid-60s at the time that I was in high school, which was a long time ago at this point. So he's got to be really old now. But the whole point, he's this native Texan who grew up in rural. Texas, and he kind of like epitomizes what you would call old school. Like he was just old school in every aspect that that word can be applied. Now because he was so old school, he had this certain set of expectations for the players who played for him. For example, our hair was not allowed to touch our ears on the side. So if your hair touched your ears, he would force you to go get a haircut. If your hair touched your collar on the back of your neck, it was too long, he would force you to go get a haircut. If you had too much hair on the top of your head and it came out of the front of your hat, he would send you home from practice and you weren't allowed to come back until you got a haircut. So that's just one example. Uh, The other thing is that we had to be clean-shaven every day. No facial hair was allowed Uh, for any of his players. And so if I would show up with too much scruff or a five o'clock shadow, he would hand me this rusty two blade razor and he would tell me to go into the bathroom with soap from the sink and I had to shave my face in order to practice. All of this. I I used to, I started growing a beard when I was a junior in high school, and I used to have to shave before I got to practice because if I shaved in the morning, there was too much scruff, and he would force me to shave again before I was allowed to practice. And if we didn't meet all of these conditions, we weren't allowed to get on the bus for an away game. He would literally send us home on our way to a game because he said that we didn't meet the expectations of what it meant to be a Lake Travis High School baseball player. Now, we had a uniform for school. We had a uniform. And this is a public school. But he instituted a a uniform for school. We had a uniform for practice. We had a uniform for games. And every day, there was a certain expectation of what you had to wear in whatever given circumstance. And if you didn't wear the right thing, there was this kind of like weird East Texas math that he would start to do where he would take the number of colors on your shirt and he would then count the number of letters on the shirt inside of the tag included and he would multiply them together and that was the number of laps that you would have to run for not wearing the correct thing to practice. Somehow it always added up to a number over 100. It could have been like two colors and four letters on a shirt and it would still end up as like 106 laps. There's where like this East Texas math comes in is there was never actually any math going on. I believe to this day that he would just make up an unreasonable number and that is what he would go with on that given day. Now he kept meticulous records of all of this on this clipboard that he would carry with him at any given point in time. So it would be all of these notes on how long my hair was, whether I had to shave before practice on a certain day. And he would keep track of the number of laps that you still owed him because it was impossible to run it off all in a single day. And so he would say, well, J.D., you still have 37 laps left. You can go knock out 20 of those while we start practice, and then you owe me the the rest of them tomorrow. And so he would keep track and log all of this stuff. The thing was, he was really, really concerned with how we looked and the way in which we carried ourselves. He was super concerned with how I I dressed and the way that I carried myself around people, even down to the point that I I was a kid who moved to Lake Travis from Ohio uh, when I was a freshman in high school. And so I show up, and I'm meeting the coach for the very first time. Now, you got to understand, in Ohio, we don't say ma'am or sir. That's just not a part of being polite. I'd never heard it in my life. But Roy Canan expected that you would say, yes sir, no sir. And so the first time he asks me a question, I answer him, yeah. I was like, yeah. And he just looked at me, just stared at me. And I didn't know what to do, and then he just said, excuse me? And I was like, yeah. And then he just said, excuse me? And he sat there and stared at me until, he, until I finally figured out he's looking for yes sir. And so he would do this sort of stuff to you because he was incredibly, incredibly uh, particular about the words we used and the way that we presented ourselves. And for me, as a high school kid, it felt really, really constraining. It felt very limiting about uh, the things that I could do or the ways that I could express myself in my life. And for a long time, even after I was done playing for him, it would make me mad. The first winter that I came home from college, I went up and I visited him in his office, and I'd grown my hair out, and some of you guys had saw me with my long hair, and I come in with my hair in a bun, and I've got this scraggly beard just because I wanted to stick it to the man. Like, he couldn't tell me to cut my hair or shave any longer. And looking back on it now, I realized that he was trying to teach us how to be young men who presented themselves well. That is what he was first and foremost concerned with, was how we presented ourselves. When we eventually went to job interviews, when we uh, interviewed for different things, he wanted to know that he had taught us how to dress appropriately. He wanted to know that we knew how to show up uh, with an appropriate hairstyle and facial hair, which apparently I still haven't figured out. But these are the things that he really cared about. Now, the kicker was that he never vocalized any of this. We never knew the reason why all of these rules were in place. We just knew that we had to follow them if we wanted to play baseball. And now it's only now, looking back, that I can begin to understand that he was trying to form us as young men. Now, we all have experiences like this, where we were required to follow what felt like a really arbitrary set of rules. Things that didn't make sense, things that we didn't get, we didn't like, or we didn't want to follow or agree with. And this could have been in our relationship with our parents. Oftentimes it it happens in our parental relationships. Why do I have to do that? Because I said so. Well, that's not a very good reason in my kid brain, right? Could have been our bosses our teachers, our pastors, any number of authority figures in our life. And the reason we get upset in those circumstances is because we don't understand the heart behind the rules. We don't understand the heart behind why we're expected to do things in a certain way. We just experience the the constraining nature of not being able to do whatever it is that we want to do in a given circumstance. But oftentimes, when we get to understand the heart behind the rules, the heart behind the expectation, it becomes much, much easier for us to begin to follow those, those sorts of things, because we see the purpose of the rule. Even if we don't agree with it, we can understand and know that there is a legitimate reason why. Now, for many Jews in the first century, this was their experience. There was this set of laws found within the Torah. Now, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible. If you guys open to the very, just after the table of contents, the first five books of the Bible. And the the laws found within this set of books governed their existence. It determined what was clean and unclean. It decided what sacrifices they had to make and when. It, uh, It told them when they were supposed to celebrate certain holidays and festivals. And the religious leaders at the time were really, really focused on studying, dissecting, interpreting, and abiding by these laws in their own personal lives but they also policed all of the everyday people like you and me to make sure that we were following those rules as well. Johnny put it this way when we were talking about this earlier this week, that they were essentially the hall monitor, right? They just were, walked around and they made sure that everybody else was doing what they were supposed to do. And what got lost in the, in the process was the heart behind the Torah, the heart behind the law. You see, the Torah, was the covenant code, the contractual agreement between Israel and God. God says in Exodus chapter 6, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you up out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And so the people of Israel agree to this relationship with God, and so God sets out the terms for this covenant relationship. And this happens in the form of the laws that we read about in the books of Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, anybody who has done the Bible in a year plan generally makes it through the book of Genesis. You get through most of the book of Exodus, and then you begin to hit the law, and that's where all of us start to fall off. That's been me a lot of different times because it's incredibly dense for us to read. And their obedience to the laws found within the Torah were the way in which the people of Israel held up their end of the covenant. Now the word Torah is a Hebrew word that means instruction. It means instruction. These laws were meant to make the people of Israel wise. They were meant to make the people of Israel wise so that they knew what it meant to be the people of God. So the story of the Old Testament is the story Uh, Of this people group, Israel, this ethnic minority, Israel, wandering away from God, failing to keep up their end of the agreement. God rescuing them and the people inevitably disobeying and going their own way over and over and over again. And ultimately what happens is that God allows them to reap the consequences of their own disobedience. And this led to the nation of Babylon in 587 BC, coming in, taking over the city of Jerusalem, and they exiled the Jewish people all over the Babylonian kingdom. It's what we call the diaspora. So all of these people are spread out. Now, over time, Babylon is eventually taken over by the Romans. And when we get to the Roman period, this is when we get to the life of Jesus. This is when we get to the life of Jesus. So the religious leaders here in the first century AD naturally are really, really focused on the people of Israel following the laws of the Torah so that things might go well for the nation of Israel. That if we return to covenant obedience and faithfulness, then things will go well for us again. God will rescue us out of our suffering. And what happened in this process is that the law became this sort of idol for the Jewish religious leaders. They were attempting to follow the law and they were attempting to force everybody else to follow it too, but in the meantime, they were missing the heart behind the law. They were missing the reason for their obedience to the works of the law. They were missing what it truly meant ultimately to be the people of God. God was not interested in a group of people who could follow a set of rules. He was interested in a group of people who demonstrated covenant faithfulness to a loving God who wanted to bless them and provide for them. And so when Jesus enters the picture, he's confronting them and pointing out this hypocrisy. He's saying, ultimately, you're focused on the wrong things. You're focused on all of these external things, but what really matters are the matters of the heart. They're the matters of the heart. And this is ultimately what leads to conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. So the beginning, of this li- uh, the beginning of this week in the life of Jesus is marked the first thing that happens is that Jesus goes into the temple, and it's a very familiar story, and it's a little bit uncomfortable for us. But he asserts his authority by running out all of these people, scamming a prophet off of worshipers. And he essentially stops the sacrificial system that was happening and the temple. Now the rest of the stories of Jesus' teaching in this section of the book of Mark are centered around this location, the temple. So the symbolic center uh, of the section, but it's also the place in which Jewish people would come to worship. They would offer their sacrifices, they would draw near to the presence of God that dwelt in the temple. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he begins to interact with the leaders of Israel here in the temple. And the Pharisees and the scribes begin to ask him all sorts of questions. Like, who gave you the authority to do and to teach these things? That's their first question. Then they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Then they really think that they're gonna get him and they say, well, is there marriage in the afterlife? Is there marriage in the afterlife? Now, each time Jesus recognizes the trap that these religious leaders are trying to set for him, when it comes to matters of the law, and it says the answers with profound wisdom. And so, today, what we're gonna do is we're gonna examine one of these stories where Jesus interacts with a leader of Israel. After all of this hostility that kind of marks the, uh, both Mark chapter 11 and the first part of Mark chapter 12, this story really comes as a surprise for us, because we're told that a a scribe overhears the disputes that are going on between Jesus and these religious authorities. And he recognizes that Jesus' answers are are really good, and so he decides to ask them about the commandments. We're gonna pick it up in verse 28 of Mark chapter 12, and it says, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he had answered them well, he asked him, being Jesus, what commandment is the most important of them all. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more Questions. Now, this story is a surprise because Jesus declares a scribe to be not far from the kingdom of heaven, to be near to the kingdom of heaven. All throughout the book of Mark, we have seen Jesus point out the hypocrisy of these same religious leaders. And he really hones in on the fact that they're focused on these external things, but they're missing the internal things, the matters of the heart. And yet here is this scribe, who recognizes that purity is not determined by external actions, but purity is a matter of the heart. And so the story is is meant, in the midst of all of this conflict, to stop us in our tracks. In all the hostility and debate, in the midst of all the noise that's going on around Jesus, here's a story of someone that we wouldn't expect being close to the kingdom of God and yet he is so the question becomes what is it about this scribe that causes Jesus to declare that he's near to the kingdom of god well mark tells us that he answered wisely that he listened to Jesus and was able to discern that Jesus's answers were good and recognized that this that what Jesus was saying was more important than all of these external works of the law he recognizes that jesus is speaking to the heart of what it means to follow god in our lives now the answer that jesus gives this scribe is oftentimes called the great commandment did you guys grow up learning that sunday school those of you guys who who grew up in church what is the greatest commandment well it's this right And the great commandment really, if we break it down, contains three foundational elements of the Christian faith that are really important for us to understand. The first of which is belief in the one God. Belief in the one God, wholehearted devotion to God, and love of one's neighbor. These are the three key foundational elements of the Christian faith. And so here's what I want to do. I want to talk through each of these foundational elements found in the words of Jesus in this passage, and I I just wanna see what they have to teach us today. The first of these is belief in the one God. We are all created and called to believe in the one God found here in the scriptures. That is our universal calling as human beings. We were created for relationship with God. Now today, we live in a pluralistic world where there are an incredible number of worldviews and gods vying for our attention and our devotion. Every day. And this was the same back in ancient Israel. Every neighboring nation to Israel had its own set of gods or God. And the temptation was always to worship these other gods, especially when God, Yahweh, isn't doing what I want him to do. To put it into kind of like our modern language, this is to take the approach of treating God like he is a genie in the bottle, that when I rub the bottle and I make my wish and what I wished for doesn't come true, then I move on to the next one until I get what I want. Until I get what I want. But what Jesus does here is he confesses the one God of Israel who brought the people out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land. And what Jesus does at the start of his answer is, quote, what is called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, the Shema was this daily prayer for ancient Israelites, and it's still recited by many Jewish people today. Ancient Jewish people prayed these words out loud every morning and every night. That was like their, uh, their habit, that when they woke up in the morning, they prayed this prayer before they went to bed at night. They prayed this prayer. And the prayer really has been one of the most influential traditions in Jewish history. It functions both as kind of a Jewish pledge of allegiance and this hymn of praise. It states belief in God, that there are no other gods like him. Think back to commandment number one in the Ten Commandments. And it declares his goodness. It calls to mind all that God has done for the people of Israel. The opening line, hear, O Israel, does not simply mean to let sound waves enter our ears. It doesn't mean this, I don't know if it's physics, I don't know what the whole deal is, I don't know how sound works, or if it's a biological reaction, but it's not the process of sound waves entering our ear. Here the word "shma," which is the Hebrew word for listen or hear means to allow the words to sink in, to provide us understanding and to generate a response. The word hear, found in this prayer, is about action. In the Hebrew language, there's no differentiation between listening and doing. They're the same thing. So when you read this word, it's about hearing it, but then responding with action. So this is our universal calling, believe and confess in the one God of the Bible. Now Jesus defines this confession with two actions. Wholehearted devotion to God and love of one's neighbor. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. In other words, the people are to love God with all of who they are, with their entire beings, their knowledge, their existence, everything that they are is to love God with action, obedience, and covenant faithfulness. Now at this point, the tribe would have, the scribe would have totally been tracking with Jesus. These are the exact words found in the book of Deuteronomy. Here, Jesus just quoted the entire Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is ultimately what it meant to be a faithful Jew. This is the heart of the law, the essence of whether you believe it's 611 or 613 commandments. This is the heart of all of it. So every good Jewish teacher would say that this is the most important commandment. But Jesus does something really, really interesting. He then tacks on a second. It's like he can't leave something out. And he says the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Okay, this is something new. So let's, let's think about this for a minute. Following Jesus is all about love. And as we receive Jesus' love for us, We respond with gratitude, humility, and a commitment to honor and love in return. What we receive, we now freely give. And so Jesus here says that this response of love is supposed to be directed towards how we treat our neighbor. So who is our neighbor? Jesus' purpose here is not... uh, to say in some legalistic way that we're supposed to care for the literal person who lives next to us and that's it. He's laying out for us ultimately an ethic that views those around us, the, the people that we interact with on an everyday basis in a dramatically new way. Sure, there is our physical neighbor, the person who lives in the dorm next to us, the person who lives in the apartment next to us. I never had a a neighbor when I was in college that I really loved, if I'm being perfectly honest. They were all weird. I don't know why, I don't know how it works, but it seems to be a weird universal truth. So sure, there is our physical neighbor. But there's also our classmates, there's also our coworkers, our teammates, the, the person that we see on the bus with every day and we've never actually decided to say anything to. So why ultimately does Jesus say our neighbor? Well, that's because our neighbors, the people that we see every single day, are oftentimes the hardest people in our lives to love because they annoy us, they hurt us, they uh, just become, quite frankly, invisible to us. They're just the person that we see or the nameless face in the back of the classroom. And so Jesus is saying here that our confession of belief in the one God of the Bible and our love of God is supposed to be backed up with everyday, ordinary action that loves and cares for those around us that we often fail to demonstrate love and care for. Here's the thing. Love is reciprocal. Love generates more love. When we love our neighbor, they begin to respond in loving ways. And that ultimately results in faithfulness and obedience when they come to see how we treat people because of this profession, this confession of belief in the God of the Bible, in the person of Jesus. This is a a really profound but simple truth that has the ability to transform us from the inside out. Now, the first and second commandments taught by Jesus here, to love God and to love our neighbor, are, are what it means to follow Jesus. Ultimately, if you boil it down, to follow Jesus is to love God and to love our neighbor. And this Calling is to guide how we uh, are to live life as God intends it to be lived. And the scribe in this story recognizes this inside-out nature of what Jesus is saying here, that our faith in in God begins with purity of heart that results in loving action towards God and others. And this recognition is ultimately what causes Jesus to declare this man near to the kingdom of God. Now, we just talked about some theological principles, so let's just summarize at this point. We're all called to believe in the one God found here in the Scriptures. This is our universal calling, and that's ultimately defined by loving God and loving others. And so when you take a step back and you examine the words of Jesus, it really doesn't seem that hard. He only gives two commands. We've gone from 613 to two here in this moment. And so here lies the problem. Our tendency is to allow good things, but not essential things, to become essential and defining forces in our lives. Nation, occupation, family, race, political cause, theological system, you name it. We allow these things to get added to the commands of Jesus to love God and to love others, and they become these dividing lines among those of us who follow Jesus. And what it ultimately does is that keeps us from loving one another. And that is especially true of our neighbors. It is especially true of our neighbors. Societal change is happening faster today than at any other point in our lifetimes. The world is changing at an ever-increasing pace, and the fear that comes with that level of change drives what's called tribalism. Now what tribalism does is it emphasizes what divides us rather than what unites us. Tribalism emphasizes what divides us rather than what unites us, and the more threatened that we feel in our own beliefs, the tighter we draw circles to distinguish between us and them. The more narrowly we we define us and them. And this tribalism ultimately drives us towards what's called uh, polarization. And polarization is this move that creates more and more distance between groups of people who don't agree on a certain issue. Research has been done over the last 40 years here in the United States, and what they've found is that we increasingly hate and fear those who don't agree with us. We increasingly hate and fear those who don't agree with us. And so this exchange here between Jesus and the scribe becomes a powerful illustration of the great commandment and its ability to unite us instead of divide us. Even though this conversation occurs in the middle of a dispute, in the middle of a series of arguments between Jesus and the representatives of these parties and leaders of the religious establishment, Jesus and the the scribe are able to rise above this party strife and cross the dividing line of hostility to confess a common faith. They're able to find unity. And this moment presents a great corrective us. Because they join together in the conviction that there is no commandment greater than loving God and loving our neighbor, they're actually able to treat one another as neighbors. It's pretty profound. For all of their differences, this common conviction allows them to actually treat one another as a neighbor. Both the scribe and Jesus have stepped away from these us and them Categories. They've moved beyond that, and the com- this common ground that they develop becomes a place of reconciliation in the midst of a lot of hostility. The scribe recognizes Jesus as the great teacher, and Jesus recognizes this scribe as someone drawing close to the heart of God. And their lived out common devotion to God and neighbor silences the debate that was going on. The end of verse 34, it says, from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. It just ends the conversation. And so how, how profound would it be if we chose to follow the example of Jesus in our own lives? How many times do we allow good things but not essential things to divide us, to keep us out of relationship from one another, to keep us from loving our neighbor, even when our neighbor is a follower of Jesus? Actually, it's particularly true when our neighbor is a follower of Jesus. Jesus calls those of us who follow him to love God and to love our neighbor and to allow these things to be the things that unite us and to find unity in this calling. And so my challenge for y'all is this. I just want every day for the next week for you guys to recite the words of Jesus found in this, pas- in this passage out loud to yourself. Mark 12, 29 to 31. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Memorize the words of Jesus over the course of the next week. Then every morning and every night, recite them out loud to yourself. Just like the ancient Israelites did with the Shema, recite it every morning and night evening. Can you imagine a better way to keep these truths at the very forefront of our minds than praying this prayer on a daily basis? To meditate on these truths, to allow them to sink in and to begin to transform the way in which we view those around us. Years ago, I worked uh, with a guy for a long time who was a high school Bible teacher at a private school in Marble Falls. It was a really cool job. I thought I wanted to be him one day because he taught the Bible and he coached basketball. I just wanted to coach baseball, but it was a pretty cool gig. And every day he would begin class with these high schoolers by reciting the Shema in Hebrew with them. The first thing that they did is that he would recite the Shema in Hebrew word by word, and they would repeat after him every single day to start class. And when they finished reciting it in Hebrew, they would all say it in English together, and they would finish and say, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And they would do this really cheesy, woo, at the end of it, like you would do at church camp. And this meant that every day, these students would recite the words of Jesus found in this story. Even if they didn't realize it, even if they hated it, even if they thought it was cheesy, what was happening was something profound. As they said this every day, the core message of what it means to follow Jesus was seeping deeper and deeper into their hearts. It was becoming more and more ingrained as who God created them to be. Every day, these students were reminded that to follow God meant to love God and to love God their neighbor. Now, I wanted really, really badly. I had it memorized for a while to recite the entire Shema in Hebrew, and we were going to do the whole thing together. I just didn't have time. It got away from me. But I would just challenge you for the next week, morning and evening, when you wake up in the morning and before you go to bed at night, recite the words of Jesus out loud. Tape it on your bathroom mirror. I don't know if people still do that. That was the thing when I was in high school. Make it your phone background, put it on your steering wheel, whatever will help you, but pray this prayer. Recite it out loud to yourself every morning and every evening, and watch what happens when we allow these words of Jesus to transform the way in which we love the people around us. When we begin to take these words seriously, it is remarkable the sort of unity that's built around this common conviction of following Jesus. This is the basic meaning of what it means to follow him, to love God and to love others. And sometimes the most basic thing is the most difficult thing for us. We want to rush on to bigger and greater things. We want to rush on to more grand things in our life. And because of that, we often lose sight or demean this very simple kind of following Jesus where we just love the people that God has placed around us. So the great corrective for us is to remember the words of Jesus and to live them out, following Jesus today in the life we're living right now. This is the calling that we must grasp and practice, to love God and to love others. Let me pray. God, we we thank you, Lord, that although we have this very large, instructive, living breathing book that we call your word. Lord, we thank you that the essence is so simple. God, we recognize that sometimes the simplest things are the hardest things for us. And so, Father, throughout this week, as we read these words, as we recite them every day, Lord, may you create in us a new heart, a heart that loves you and loves the people that you've placed around us. God, we, we, oftentimes we do make it so complicated, and yet it is so simple. And so we ask you to show us more of who you are for, through this simple practice. May be, that be the thing that draws us into deeper unity with those around us. We pray all this in your name. Amen.